got your Bibles, go to John chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. We're going to look at the first 21 verses. Hope we get through all that this morning. It is a miracle um, that Jesus does. It is the only miracle besides the resurrection recorded in all four of the Gospels. It is the feeding of the 5,000. And I am glad that we're looking at that today. On the same day, we would show our budget video. That wasn't planned, but I'm so glad it worked out that way because what happens is it's easy to look at a budget, whether you look at it from a church, whether you look at it as a business, uh, whether you look at it as a family. So it's easy to look and go, okay, budgets and strategies and, and resources. And, and so then we find ourselves, based on that, uh, either feeling constrained by what we don't have or confident in what we do have. And neither one of those things is the correct response for people who are believers living out what it is that Jesus has called us to do. Because the reality is, and this passage helps put it into context for us, it is not about what we have or can accumulate. It is about who Jesus is and what He's called us to do and to be and the power that He supplies for all of it. Because here's the reality. Jesus commands us the impossible. And yet, through Jesus, all things are possible. And so we'll see that so clearly this morning. And, and so just like chapter 5. So if you were with us the last couple of weeks in chapter 5, how it works. Jesus does a miracle on the front end. And then he, through a, a teaching, will drop a theological bombshell about who he is. That's exactly how this works. We'll look at the miracle this week. We'll look at the theological bombshell that he drops next week, which is some of the most difficult passages in all of John. So pray for me this week um, as I'm studying. Uh, if you think about it, and then come and we'll, we'll work all that out together. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to begin reading from John chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'll read a few verses and we'll talk about it and We'll do that all the way through um, verse 21. So John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, after the events of chapter 5, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So he's telling us this. Tiberias was this city. Um, it was a Gentile city, but for a long period of time, the Sea of Galilee was known as the Sea of Tiberias. John's telling us this, the readers um, so, but that's the setting. It's up in Galilee. And there was a large crowd following him because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. He'd been going around healing people. So Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Or you might read that as it was near, it was upcoming. The, the place and the time. This is the, the place and the time of the miracle. And it's, it's the setup, not just for the miracle, but it's actually the setup for the whole chapter. And it's more than just geography and chronology. And when John drops in there that the time of the Passover is at hand, so the, the Jewish festival of the Passover, he's telling us not just geography, not just chronology, he's telling us something theologically. That is going to shape... Everything that Jesus does and says in this chapter. 
that the Israelites were, if it was the time of Passover, um, it, was, it was in the air, okay? It was, it was a lot like if, you know, so it was the 4th of July here. As you get up close to the 4th of July, you know, everybody puts a flag out and you feel these uh, patriotic and you feel um, historic and you look back on the founding fathers and, you, and it's, a, it's a time where we remember and we celebrate our freedom. And that's what the Passover was that they were remembering when God came down himself through the prophet Moses and freed them from slavery and all of the things that he had done to to free them from, from Egypt and to preserve them in the wilderness. It was in the air. It was a a time of, of celebration. But, you know, it's not unlike today when we celebrate the 4th of July. Because if we're honest, so 4th of July we celebrate freedom, and we celebrate our freedom. At the same time, in the midst of celebrating our freedom, I mean, we're slaves to sin, we're slaves to debt, we're slaves to significance, we're slaves to prejudice, we're slaves to the um, if only, then, you know? You know how that goes, right? Well, if only... You know, if only this thing happened, or if if only I could, then, then, you know, the if only then. Slaves to that. And so that's very much like what's going on. They're remembering their freedom. They're celebrating it, all that God's done. And yet they live with this pain of living in the promised land, but the promised land isn't theirs. It belongs to Rome. They're under Roman rule. They're paying Roman taxes. And so they... They live with this, not to mention all the things in their lives they find themselves in bondage to. And so that, that's the, the time and the place. It, it, it colors and helps us understand the rest of the chapter. But then you're faced with, beginning in verse 5, what I would call an impossible problem. So look with me in verse 5. It says, lifting up his eyes, this is Jesus, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, so there they are. They'd gotten away. They, they were, um, had, had a season of ministry. You discover from the other Gospels, Jesus had been uh, healing the sick. I mean, they'd had a, a, a ferocious pace of ministry. Jesus goes to oh, the other side of the, of the sea to try to get away from all these people for a minute, to take his disciples, to go up into the mountains, just to sit down and just and rest and, and talk and do that sort of thing. But the people won't leave him alone. And Um, he sees all the people coming. Now, here's what's great. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate host. I mean, the earth is his and everything in it. And, And so we have this season of time where Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is physically in residence as the host in his hospitality. There's nothing to compare. So he's not frustrated. He's not upset. He's, say, Philip, look at all these people. And it must be about some time, you know, it's hot or it's mealtime or something. So, so Philip, where are we going to get all the, how are we going to feed everybody? Well, he probably asked Philip this because Philip's hometown was pretty close to where they were. And so by default, you know, hey, you're familiar with this place. Where are we going to get the food to feed everybody. Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people may eat? Then John tells us this. He said this to test him, 
for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread not enough to fit for, uh, not, would not be enough for each of them to just get a little. He responds to the crowd, this word test, this testing of Philip, it's an interesting word. It's a word, so 16 times in the ESV anyway, it's translated as test. 14 times it's translated as tempt. The word is neutral. It depends on the context how it's used. So, so you find Jesus, he, um, in the wilderness, in Matthew's gospel, he's tempted by Satan um, at the beginning of his ministry. Satan's called a, a tempter. Paul tells us that Satan tempts us to sin. He tempts us to unfaithfulness. He tempts us with evil and in wickedness. James assures us, though, that God never tempts us with evil, never tempts us to sin. James and, and, and uh, Peter both in their letters will, will, will make the case that the trials or the sufferings that come in our life, they're a test. And, and they test us for the purpose of building up and maturing our faith. And they should be, we should rejoice in, in them because of that. And so the nature of a test has more to do with or it depends upon the intent of the person conducting it. And here, Jesus is conducting a test for Philip. Actually, probably for all the disciples. You know, and there's two ways to ask a question. You can ask a question that you don't know the answer to to try to discover an answer. That's one way. Another way to ask a question is to ask a question that you already know the answer to because you're trying to discover something about the person you asked the question, right? That's a great parenting strategy. Do you know what time you came home last night? See, I already know the answer to that. I just want to know if you do. Here's what's interesting. You find out from the text, Jesus actually knows both those scenarios. He, he knows the answer to the question. He already knows what he's going to do. And he already knows Philip doesn't know. And that's why he's testing him. See, I think the reason he's testing him is not because Jesus needs to find anything else, because Philip needs to find something out. Okay, so you've been walking with me? This is the second Passover, so we know it's the ministry's been going on with Jesus at least a year, maybe longer. So you've walked with me, you've seen these things, you've heard me teach, you've, um, you've seen me do things that are really unexplainable unless I'm God and these are miracles. Philip, there's a bunch of people and we need to feed them. How are we going to do that? Well, so Jesus, notice, he asks, where do we get the bread Philip answers with how. It's impossible. A denarii. So a dollar's, uh, it was a, a denarii was a day's wage. 200, he's saying, he's doing the math in his head. If we had eight months worth of wages, we wouldn't even be able to buy enough for everybody to have a little. And besides all that, I don't know where we would go. There's no place that we could go and buy eight months worth of food. Philip looked at the problem in terms of, one, the minimum requirement. What if everybody just had a little? So it certainly wasn't thinking about abundance. And he looked at it, and all he could see was the statistical impossibility. Several writers refer to that as the statistical pessimist. And the church is kind of full of them. And they end up on boards, usually. You know? I mean, not here. Not, of course not here. But I've heard of churches where, you know, it happens. It's like, oh, well, no. No, we can't, ever, we can't do that. So that's what's going on. So now, that's the problem. Notice, 
the impossible answer to the impossible problem. Look at beginning verse 8. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Every time he talks about Andrew, he's always Simon Peter's brother. All right, so I don't know what's going on there, but always Simon Peter's brother. And so he said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five loaves and two fish. And then I'm sure he's thinking, why did I say that? That's not helpful. But what are they for so many? That's what I really meant to say. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. Now, if you go to Mark or Matthew or Luke, you, define, you find out. So he has them sit down in groups. And, and Matthew tells us the grass was not just grass, but it was green grass. We know it's the spring. It's Passover's coming. John's not focused in all those details because he, he actually wants us to see some different things from the same story of what was going on with Jesus. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So they just counted men back in the day. It wasn't, there was no prejudice to it. It's just how they counted. So it's very likely there's not just 5,000 people, maybe 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people that are seated here. So Jesus then took the loaves And when he had given thanks, Father, we thank you for the bounty that you've placed before us. He would have said something just like that, to which the disciples would be like, no, just no bounty here. So then he distributed them to all who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, And when they'd eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. The the word here for the the boy, you know, that has the the little lunch, I mean, it's it's only used this one time in the New Testament. It's a what they call a diminutive. So he means it's probably a small boy. So this is a little boy with a, with a small lunch. And barley cakes, that was what the poor ate. The poor ate barley. And they would have come out, they would have been hard. They would have been, you know, small, like a little, like a pancake shape. It's, a, it's not a lunch. I mean, maybe like a Lunchable, all right? But it's not a lunch. I mean, it's a, it's a snack. Have you ever been to a third world country? You know you know anyway, I mean, or if you've ever been outside a first world country, let me say it that way, you know, most people in the world outside of a first world country do not very often eat till they're full. Do not eat in abundance, you know? And that's the way this scene is. You have a small boy, he's poor, he has the bread of the poor, and there's not very much at that. I mean, I remember eating lunch at my kids' schools. I mean, you know, every now in elementary school, anyways. And they get to middle school, they for some reason they don't, they like don't want you coming to lunch with them. I don't understand why, but um, so you show up at the elementary school. Every now and then, I've eaten the lunch from the cafeteria, and you realize it's not an adult lunch. You know, I mean, you leave there and have to go to Whataburger. Um, it's not enough to satisfy hunger. We're meant to be reminded of, as we hear this, the barley loaves and the boy. 
I think we're meant to be reminded. And they would have, they would have known this. They knew their Old Testaments. We, we don't know our Old Testaments like they knew their Old Testaments. But in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha, he does something very similar, but it's on a smaller scale. He's got 100 men before him, and he's got 20 barley cakes or barley loaves. So he tells the servant, hey, here's what I want you to do. These 100 men go and lay these 20 loaves before him. And, and, the, guy would have, and the servant says to him, well, I can't do that. I mean, these are grown men, and these are small little loaves. This is not, and, and so what Elisha says is he repeated to him, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So the servant set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Well, that's 20 barley cakes for 100 men. This is Jesus. He has five for what's possibly 20,000 people. Jesus is greater than Elisha, but he's also greater than Moses. That's also what we're to remember. It's Passover. They would have been remembering it. They would have remembered what he did, what God did to bring the Israelites out of, uh, of Egypt and, and how he sustained them in the wilderness. And when they got to the wilderness and they did not have anything to eat, do you know what God did? God sent manna from heaven that showed up every single morning, and he did it without fail for 40 years. And in Joshua chapter 1, you see where the Israelites get into the promised land. The first taste of the food from the promised land. Then God stops with the manna because they don't need it anymore. And what God provided through Moses in the wilderness, Jesus here is providing for some 20,000 people on a hill. In fact, Jesus is going to make the point later that's part of the of the theology that he's going to tease out of this. And he's going to say, look, Moses did this so that bread came down from heaven, but I just want you to know, to those that are listening, God has sent the real bread, the true bread from heaven. And then you know what Jesus says in verse 35? I am the bread of life. And so there's all these things going on. And John wants us to see in verses 10 and 11, there's this contrast. There's this contrast of this meager lunch, little boy with a small lunch, and the abundance with which people were fed. They had all that they wanted. And then in 12 and 13, when he has the disciples gather up what's left over, John, he has that for a reason. He always... John always has a reason. And the leftovers, they were miraculously more than the, than the started withs. Twelve baskets full. So presumably every disciple is holding a basket full of proof of the power of Jesus to abundantly meet the impossible needs in front of them. It's going to be amazing how quickly they forget that, however. Well, in verses 14 and 15, you're going to see the crowd's response. I mean, this is how the people respond, the response of the people. Well, they're people, just like you and I. And the very first taste they have of the power of Jesus, it sets in motion in them this zealous desire to strong-arm God to accomplish their will and desire. And we do the same thing. We expend a tremendous amount of energy trying to strong-arm God into accomplishing our wills 
into our desires. And, and so you have an impossible problem met with an impossible answer. This is what I call the impossible response. And it's impossible because the intent of the crowd is to take Jesus by force to direct the power of Jesus for their own purposes. Listen to this. When the people, verse 14, saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. They're looking back at Deuteronomy 18 where Moses said, there's a prophet, a greater one than me coming. And here he is. And so perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Slipped away. You know, I'll tell you, there's, there's um, a problem because the people, and when I say the people, I mean you and I as well. We become so short-sighted and our desires are so cosmically underwhelming we can't we can't even possibly imagine john already told us jesus knows us he he knew them as long as they were fed they'd be fans that's what they were following but jesus didn't come to satisfy those appetites he didn't come to fill their bellies he came to save their souls, and to satisfy these longings and these hungers that, that no abundance of food or wealth or significance or, or anything else in this world can satisfy. And if he'd allowed them to crown him king then, it would have put the entire salvation story of God which began before the foundations of time in jeopardy. Because that is not why he as we pray, we pray remembering, oh yeah, this isn't the story. Or if it is the story, it's only a little bit of the story. It's like, it's like into the first half page of the foreword of the story that goes on for eternity. And yet we get all wrapped up in our half page. Well, all these impossible things, and then it's followed on by an impossible appearing. Look, look at verse 16. He's going to give us this other kind of a bonus miracle here in the midst of it before the teaching. It says, when evening, evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. So Jesus slips away. He goes back up into the mountain. The people that are there, they're, you know, talking about how they're going to take up swords, and we're going to go take Rome, and Jesus will be our king, and, and we'll kick Rome out, and all, you know, all that stuff. Well, Jesus slips away. The disciples are like, well, I don't know where Jesus went. I guess we'll meet him at the boat. So they go to the boat. They wait till dark, and they realize he's not coming. And so they've got they, they, they set sail across the sea. And, and John tells us that it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea became rough, and a strong wind was blowing. So you have, you have darkness. They're alone without Jesus in the dark. And in John's gospel, he means something by that. So Jesus is the light of the world, and the darkness can't overcome him. They're going to worry the darkness is going to overtake them. And if it's not the darkness, it'll be the storm. And if it's not the storm, it'll be the wind. And, and when they'd rode about three or four miles, maybe six or seven hours in the midst of this, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. 
Because we find out from the other Gospels, they didn't know it was Jesus. They thought it was a ghost. Because you know, that happens every day. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Ego a me is how it reads in the Greek. You know what it literally translates? I am. Do not be afraid. And these Old Testament readers in the middle of Passover, they would have had all these things on their mind. Do you know how God, when Moses says, when I go to Pharaoh and I tell him who sent me, who do I say? God says, you tell him, I am sent you. Jesus is declaring about himself, as the Nicene Creed puts it, I am very God of very God. I am God. Do not be afraid. So with that, although John doesn't record it, the wind stops, the sea goes calm. John tells us they invited him in to the boat. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They'd been rowing, they were at the end of their strength, and they were filled with terror. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. You know, there's a sense in which I think maybe there's an allusion all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And here Jesus takes control of His creation. And with two little words, the situation changes. I am. This amazing power displayed by God. It's an amazing power on display in the Son of God. As He takes these loaves and these two fish and feeds a multitude. And in the midst of a storm, calms the sea and announces there's nothing to be afraid of. Here's my question to you. I've got three of them. I only have time for one, though. But this is the one I want you to consider. As we consider how to apply this, what to take away from this passage, here's what I want to ask you. Are, are, are your eyes opened to the miracle of God's power and provision in your life that's available all the time? So, so I'm going to ask this question at the end, but I'll, I'll preview it. So what I'm going to ask you here in just a minute is, I'm going to ask you, where in your life do you see things that are indescribable? Or, or can you account for everything in your life? Because if you can account for everything in your life, I might tell you that you're not in sync with the power of God in your life. Because what God does, what Jesus does and commands us and calls us to, is absolutely impossible. And yet through the power of Jesus, through His Spirit, all things are possible. Where in your life do you look and go, you know what, I don't know, this is, indes this is indescribable. Where is that? See, Paul will pray for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 19. 
prays for him, praying for him. I hope that you know these things. And he says, I, I pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Pray that. Also, we'll pray for things greater than we can ask or imagine. You see any of that in your life? See, Christ commands what is impossible. Yet with Christ, the impossible becomes possible. That's the core truth. It's like this parable that, that tells us how this thing works. I mean, he said Augustine. Oh, Augustine. Fourth century way back. And in 1600 years, nobody's Nobody said it better. Listen to what he says about this. For the governance of the whole world is a greater miracle than satisfying 5,000 men from, with five loaves. Yet at the first miracle, no one is amazed. At the latter one, men are amazed, not because it's greater, but because it's rare. For who even now feeds the world except the one who creates crops from a few grain of seed? Therefore... As uh, he did as God does. For by the same means by which he multiplies crops from a few grain, he multiplied in his hands five loaves. The power was in fact in Christ's hands. But those five loaves were like seeds. Not entrusted to the earth to be sure. But multiplied by him who made the earth. His power. A modern writer has tried to sum up his power, and I don't can't outdo Augustine, but he puts it pretty well. Just think about this: a nuclear warhead is a thousandth of the power of a hurricane. Yet you find from Psalm 29, the Lord sits enthroned over hurricanes, and a hurricane is a billionth of the power of an eruption on the surface of the sun, which is a small star. The Bible says God scatters stars like sand. Maybe a supernova, which is a millionth times the power of an explosion on the sun. But yet it is just one infinite number of points of power in the universe. And Paul says his power is beyond that. It is beyond the beyond. He is greater than great. And even if we sat and we try to imagine everything that we could imagine about the power of God, we wouldn't even come to the outskirts of it. When they would ask who Jesus is, he would do something. Who is this guy? Often the answer was he's the one who commands the wind and the waves to be still. Do you know His power in your life? You know it in the places where Christ will command you because He commands you to the impossible. I mean, you think about it. Here's 12 guys. Here's 12 
knuckle-headed guys that aren't on the varsity of anybody's team. And Jesus chooses them, and he commissions them with something impossible. He says, listen, I want you, when I leave here, in the power of my spirit, I want you. I want you to go to the heart of Judaism right there in Jerusalem. And I want you to preach the gospel of grace. I want you to tell them everything that I've taught you. Impossible. And then when you leave there, I want you to go into Judea and Samaria, and I want you to go to the ends of the earth. I want you to go to the Roman powers that be. I, I, I want you to take the gospel, and I want you to assault the world system at hand. The one that has every fingerprints of being designed by Satan himself, the enemy of God and the hater of mankind. The one who has, who has captured the hearts of man with the high places on the earth. I want you to go there with the gospel of grace. Impossible. Not to mention what he calls for us. Be holy as I am holy. Impossible. Go and sin no more. I don't want to. But it's impossible. The law, the burden of the law that none of the apostles, nor their fathers, nor the patriarchs of the Old Testament could bear. Keep it perfectly. Impossible. Christ commands us the impossible, but all things are possible. In Christ. The disciples, they will go with the gospel of grace in such a way under the power of God that even a souls of the Sanhedrin would be saved. And then they take that gospel and they assault Rome with it. And in 300 years, millennia of mythology and paganism are set aside. They are taken off the throne. And the emperor of Rome is saved. Just the power of God. He, he commands us to the impossible. And then empowers us. He makes it possible. So, what about your life is unexplainable? If everything in your life can be explained then I'd say, listen, it's not that you don't have the power of God if you're a believer. You're not in sync with it. You don't understand it. You're like Philip. You're looking at it and go, no, there's no way we can do that. There's no way. I think that's why communion has been practiced the way it has been practiced throughout the centuries of the church. Except for the little cups. That came about when the church for a while was teetotalers, and then they went to grape juice, and then, but they discovered... Because they all shared one cup. But grape juice doesn't kill germs and so rampant infection and all that. But it doesn't matter because it's always been about a small morsel. You know, in a dip of wine or a sip of it. And I think, listen, it's the same spirit today. And if we think about it, I mean, we call it the Lord's Supper. But it is one of the most unimpressive suppers as suppers go, right? 
But it's not meant to be a supper in that sense. It's symbolic. It's a reminder. And it's a good reminder. The meager cup, the small morsel, it points us to something vastly greater, vastly more divine, vastly more powerful and eternal. And the mere taste of the elements is meant to remind us of the greater hunger we have, a greater hunger that has been satisfied through the work of Jesus. Our hunger for healing, healing what's, what's broken at the place of our soul, healing of our conscience to be cleansed, cleansed and restored from sin and from emptiness and everything wasted and misused in our life. It's meant to remind us of our hunger to be loved. And in the very elements, we hold the tangible symbols of God's love for us in the sacrifice of His Son, His body and His blood. And Jesus satisfies all the hungers we have and more. It's a reminder of what He's done. It is also a reminder that He is, he is returning. He will come Again, our future is secure. Our future is eternal. Our future is meant to be longed for. And so, we'll distribute these tiny elements. A sip of juice, and a morsel of bread, and, and they remind us of the power of God through His Son, Jesus. The sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. Then the power of God in us through His Spirit. The power is not in the elements. The power is not us. The, the power is with God. The power is not the improvements you make in your life or the skills you have or the experience you acquire or how together or not you are or how much of a mess you might be. It's not where the power lies. The power is with God. The power of God by His Spirit because of His Son Jesus to transform morsels into a feast this morning, as we remember. To put to death every lesser desire and every lesser dream that you have, so you are no longer expending the energy of your life to write your own story. But maybe this morning, for the first time, you'd be swept up and caught up in and grafted in the eternal story of Jesus. Jesus has the power to call forth what's dead in your life. To call forth the, the dead things in your life and your life period so that you may live. To transform you in the midst of your helplessness. To redeem what is stained by sin. To heal what's broken. To restore what's lost. That's what we remember. So, so I'm going to invite the men who are going to help us with communion. If they'd come forward, I'll, I'll tell you as they come, we'll distribute all the elements. We'll wait till we've all been served, and then we'll, we'll eat and drink of it together. And then we'll, uh, we'll be dismissed. So I'm going to pray for us, and then these guys will uh, pass that out. In the moments that we have, ask the Lord to examine your heart. Lord, we do. We come this morning. Thank you for your word.